Hello everyone, welcome to Tennis with an Accent. The first slam is already in the books. This is your host Saqib and we are here to do a postmortem. Uh, some of the usual suspects are returning and we have a guest making his podcast debut, uh, Mert Tetunga. You know, most of you are familiar who listen to my podcast. He's back again with his expert views and so is Andrew Burton. And we have uh, Omar Rauchi joining us from uh, Calgary who covers tennis and hockey. Welcome guys. Hey, greetings. Hi. Actually, I'm in Vancouver, Sakib. Okay, That's, thanks for correction. <laughs> so anyway, uh, let's start with Andrew, not just because alphabetical, but Andrew, uh, what are your takeaways after this fortnight of tennis, which had a lot of compelling matches and there were a lot of off-court issues and, you know, nothing new to a slam. So what are your takeaways if you were to just, you know, make a short list and just share with us? Well, I think that if, uh, if you know, building on your statement – Nearly all the compelling matches were in the WTA side of the singles tournament, and a lot of the off-court issues were on the ATP side. Um, you know, I'd be, I, I enjoyed the final for more than one reason, but I'd be quite surprised if it showed up in a list of top 10 matches of the year, whereas there were several of the women's matches that are likely to be candidates for that. On the men's side, you had... The first week, um, a lot of talk about the ATP players' meetings, the conversations that were had there, and um, the way that players did or did not respond to some of the suggestions and whether whether it was fairly reported. In the second half of the week, you had some controversy about Tennis Sandgren, who was a formerly little-known American player, who made a startling run to the quarterfinals, but then was um, asked questions about his social media posting and uh, political views. And, and so when you look at the overall tournament, uh, you know, if I was handing out letter grades, I'd be giving the, the women's tournament an A minus and the men, you know, possibly scraping a C plus. Uh, any specifics, Andrew? Like why A minus? I mean, were there stellar, of course there were stellar stories like Halep and Kerber resurgence, and uh, there was a question in this podcast that uh, Slamlist uh, number one may actually win a major. So those boxes were checked. Uh, was it an overall narrative or just those quality of uh, play? A hundred percent. The only minus is that um, two of the the game's top players. Serena Williams and Victoria Azarenka weren't able to take part. Um, you know, Serena, obviously, recently a mother. Uh, Victoria, slightly earlier mother, but for legal reasons, didn't feel that she was able to take part. So just the absence of those two champions, I think, possibly docked a grade, but then I'm grading harshly for the women and I'm possibly even grading generously yeah. for the men. Uh, Omar, you see it differently? What's your checklist from this uh, two weeks of tennis? Uh, On-court, off-court, what stands out? Yeah, when you asked the question, the first thing that came to mind was a women's tournament. And um, same same thing. Like, honestly, for the last, I don't know how long, I've, I've always been more compelled by the men's side just because maybe the big four is so consistent and always wondering which one is going to come out on top or will Stan be able to take it from them or whatever the storyline. There's there's constant storylines that run through the year, every year almost. Uh, but it was so nice to see the one and two seed go all the way in the women's side and Kerber making a huge resurgence after her down year last year. And I mean, just 
just some consistency on the women's side is such an amazing thing to see. And when you see all of them performing at that level, like, like Halep was and how Kerber was, it really is compelling tennis because, I mean, the rallies are better. They're, they go longer. They're not just a powerful serve and a, and a quick rally. They're huge, long rallies like you saw between Kerber and Halep over and over again. And it's, it was like, that was the highlight for sure. Uh, and, and I mean, you're right about the stuff on the men's side too. Uh, but I, my downside on the men's side is more the injury problems. It's just, it's such a problem uh, and it's hurting the game so much. And, you know, like everyone knew Federer was going to win before the tournament. All of us, I'm sure would have taken him as, as more than a 50% favorite. So it's, it's not as fun to watch when you know that the guy, you know, had, doesn't have many peers who can compete besides Nadal, who, who got that sad injury. Um, Mart, uh, uh, do you agree with the assessment? And what's your assessment? Let's mix the two up. Um, I would like to just simply add to what's already been said. So in, in the name of not repeating anything that uh, Andrew and Omar said, uh, I do want to bring in the miserable Australian Open website issues, and uh, both app, at both app and the site, uh, there you had anything from 503 temporarily unavailable on the website and the app to having the wrong scores, no wrong names, no stats, lack of stats, over and over again every single day. And the worst part of it is, it it, it almost seemed like. Uh, uh, the, uh, the 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 people that were in charge of it were making no effort to fix it because because it, it lasted for days and days not just one day two day but day after day it was unavailable and and I tried to get unforced error stats on on a match I could easily find the winners stat and uh, but to find unforced errors I had to go to each shot each each uh, approach shot etc cetera, etc cetera. you had to add them it was just a miserable experience for a for, for a website and app of a, of a major. And I don't know what the issue was, or, and quite frankly, I don't care, but it's simply unacceptable the way, uh, the way it was. As to the tennis part, part of it, large amount of upsets in the first week in, in, in both draws. And I would just simply, um, I agree with Andrea, with, with pretty much everything that Andrea and Omar said, except that I would not, um, I would I would grade the first week of the men's draw a little bit higher due to the large amount of upsets and and dramatic matches and you had some matches with uh, with quality and as well as drama and I could uh, just just from the top half of the draw I could count eight to ten matches that I watched glued to the screen on the men's side on the first week but once it gets to the second week I completely agree uh, the women's side uh, stole the show they were every single match was. Uh, was uh, very compelling. On the men's side, we had some duds. And uh, what better script uh, could you write for the women's final? Two players vying for the top spot, plus having never won uh, a major title before. If, if you had to write a scenario before the tournament, you couldn't have written a better scenario. Uh, and uh, let's spare a thought for Simona Hallow because she was uh, you know, uh, talked about and her composure uh, I know Wozniacki has had her share of heartbreaks, but uh, Halep was more under the scanner uh, of late, especially. So we all think, I'm uh, Mert, and uh, I don't know if you agree, uh, but even though in, in, in this loss, she walked away a more composed uh, figure. And uh, now I think a lot of us are more certain that she's not far away when this opportunity presents itself to get over the hump. What changes did you see in the demeanor, how she conducted and uh, if she has exercised any demons, you know, that were haunting her in the past. 
Well, I believe she she came into the match with some demons already, having lost uh, twice um, in the finals of, of majors, but plus uh, plus having lost some other heartbreakers before she got to the finals in in other majors. So, but you know, people forget some of the great champions of the past have failed many times in in the finals of majors before finally winning one, and uh, so uh, the, so this is not. I thought uh, uh, Simona Halep, if uh, if she want if she were to rank. All the disappointing losses uh, that uh, that she has had in the majors lately, this this would be at the bottom of that list. In other words, uh, she's she's lost disappointing matches in majors before, but this was the most acceptable one, if any. She uh, she came in, she came into the finals with uh, having won a long marathon matches, so uh, she, maybe she was not physically in in as great condition as her opponent. She she faced another opponent who played very well. And uh, she still uh, found a way to fight back, even though she was down in the third set. Um, I, I see, I see more positives for Halep in this match than than the ones before. So yes, I think this was this was a positive. At the end of the day, a few weeks down the road, she might look back at this final and say she's gotten a lot out of it. Uh, I'm gonna, you know, not give my opinions, but I'll just inform. Uh, some questions from it. So, Omar, this one is for you. Uh, do you see guys like Goffin and uh, Team? Where did they have like a disappointment of a tournament? Uh, team coming in really undercooked and was also, I think, uh, having some fever syndrome. But then he started, and then the match he lost to Tennis Sandgren. Uh, what do you see of that match, and uh, what's your takeaway for his tournament? Even and a guy like David Goffin. Uh, this is for Omar. Okay. Um... I would definitely uh, talk about team. Um, we're expecting a lot of him now. He he's just he just has to crack that top top tier, and at some point he has to he has to break through that that uh, whatever that ceiling is. And and yeah, it's definitely a disappointment, especially following the last major where he he should have won that match against Del Potro in five sets, and he managed to give that away. Um, and you know I. Both those matches, when you're watching them, you you see uh, ups and downs in his play, and you see moments where he could have closed them both out. And I think that's that's the biggest disappointment is that he just it's it's himself he's fighting and not not the opponent at times. Um, so yeah. Uh, Do you think that made it over from New York? Uh, that oh, that, I think yeah. I think there is some major baggage when you add up these two two losses that could have been wins for him. I think it's going to be baggage going forward for him and it's a big hill to climb for him uh, and, and Andrew let's uh, you know uh, bring back the lost boy uh, you know focus right here and even uh, some of the younger guys so you think uh, these guys are all great best of three set players so could, could this be the best of five format they don't see enough of that's resulting in uh, their progress I know you know we have a 36 year old Who's you know who's won three majors and then a resurgent Nadal who's won the other two majors and number one. So all the talk is about you know two of the top three. But what's preventing these other guys, especially uh, Dimitrovs and the Sasha Zverevs and Kyrgios, two generations combined? Why aren't they really making that move? Well, so I mean I'm glad that you separated out the you know the older generation of coming players, which I call Generation Grigor, the, the players born between 1989 and 1993. 
uh, from the generation that followed, 1994 to 98, uh, in, into which Kyrgios and Zverev have been the, the, the players who've made the earliest breakthroughs, but two players born in that period are Yun Chung and Kyle Edmund, both semi-finalists this year. And both Chung and Edmund earned their places there. Uh, Chung obviously um, getting past Novak Djokovic, who has been dealing with uh, elbow issues coming into the tournament, but you know, looked like a tough out and, and a hard-fought match. Kyle Edmund um, really surprised me because I had Grigor Dimitrov uh, as a pick for that that match and even as a pick to, to go all the way potentially to the final and beyond. So the, the next-gen group, the Zverev's, uh, Edmund, Chung's, Zverev himself, uh, disappointing loss, but that was to Chung. Uh, so the Generation Nick is, is, is on schedule, but Generation Grigor, um, you know, really had a, a, you know, a pretty terrible tournament. If you look at the total ATP ranking points that they won, they won about 2,900 in 2016, about 2,800 in 2017. I just did the math today. They won 2,400 points. They're, they're beginning to go backwards now rather than forwards. So uh, same question, Mert. Uh, what's causing the delay in Sasha's Zverev? I know according to Andrew, and we all agree that he has more time. Uh, but did you see that result coming? Actually, I did. I, 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 think, I, I still think Zverev has... Um... No, I, I mean, him losing to Chan specifically, I don't know. But um, I still didn't see Zverev going to the quarters or beyond. And um, and quite frankly, uh, Zverev has holes in his game. He's got um, – he has uh, – uh, for example, he still has holes on his forehand side. His second serve sometimes lands to the same spot over and over again. His transition game is not exactly where it needs to be. He's a, he's a hard hitter. He's a, he's a tall guy. He has trouble reaching out to his forehand side and hitting forehands on the stretch from the deuce corner. So he does have some holes in his game. Chung at this point has less holes in his game than Zverev does. And, um, and, and apparently he's got uh, other holes that are not game related either. You know, losing that last set uh, 6-0 to Chung, he, he, he kind of disappeared. So uh, it's, it's, it's a little bit more than just, um, just reaching a, a, a top spot for Zverev, he needs to he needs to fulfill. I mean, he needs to fill these holes first before before he can be um, he can be a top player. I don't know about the three out of five um, situation for Zverev. I'm not sure if that's a big problem. I think he can handle a three out of five, but uh, but mentally and game wise, I'm not sure that here he's where he needs to be. I, for example, game wise, if if I were to just talk about potential of the game. Of, of, of their tennis, I would put Shapovalov at this point ahead of uh, ahead of Zverev. Shapovalov has more potential for his game. He's got a more complete game than uh, than Zverev does. Interesting you say that because a lot of times uh, in the common chat regarding Zverev, uh, it's a best of five set, and and you know most of us when we talk best of five, we associate some le- level of you know mental fitness and of course physical fitness. So according to you, that's definitely not the issue then for Sasha. Mm-hmm. 
No, the the mental, the, yes, exactly. The, uh, the the I don't think the the physical fitness is an issue, but the mental fitness you, you might have a point. Yes, because obviously against Chung that uh, that was um, that was a problem. But but I still think that uh, even if he does get the physical and the mental issues uh, fixed, he still needs to fill some of these holes in his game. He he needs to play transition game better. And I don't want to go through the list again, but he 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 needs to fill he needs to fill some of these holes first. Sure. All right. So let's do a quick segue about, you know, the leading men, you know, who ended up, you know, injured in this tournament. Djokovic finished his match and Nadal, one of those rare occasions when, you know, he really couldn't bear the pain. And, you know, he also made an exit in the quarters. So, Andrew, uh, what were you uh, now? Of course, we talked about Djokovic in the preview show. So what are your takeaways on his form? I mean, uh, if there was no elbow issue, you think he, his game is almost there where it used to be? Oh, I think that's hard to tell. Genuinely, um, I think that he went into the tournament, as we know, he uh, had been scheduled for some warm-up play and, and pulled out of that, uh, had some light hit-arounds at Kuyong and at the, uh, the tie-break tennis, and I wasn't sure what to expect of him coming in. And, you know, there, there were a few wobbles early on, but also some very good play he had. A very very tough match against uh, Gael Monfils, and I'm I'm sure we'll talk about some of the issues relating to how the tournament handled Heath. Um, but you weren't quite sure if he was actually playing himself into form uh, during the tournament. Uh, at the end of the tournament, though, in his final press conference, you know he was very candid about now needing to reassess. Um, what he does in in 2018, that if he if he's tried uh, as Murray had tried to uh, to rehabilitate a chronic injury without surgery, and potentially now faces the 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 choice about either continuing to do that or having surgery, uh, I'm sure there's there's some very hard conversations going on in the Djokovic camp. It looked as though he had done just about everything right to be ready for 2018 in terms of, um, you know, putting together a very stellar team on top of Agassi. He'd added Radek Stepanek. He'd added Craig O'Shaughnessy, who does brain game tennis for the the patterns of, of play and, and data analytics. So you, I don't think you could fault Novak in terms of his preparation to, to compete at the highest levels in 2018 and it's very very unfortunate that he's now in a position of of having to reassess as as Andy Murray did before the tournament so yeah it's, we just hope you know all the leading uh, players are back and you know we wish the best for Djokovic but yeah the, I mean, again I thought you know if you remove the serve and didn't see the elbow uh, in pain he did look good but you're right it's uh, too early to assess you know his level and uh, let's stay tuned on his progress uh, so Omar uh, I know injuries are not new to Rafael Nadal and you know I know a big admirer of Nadal as well so what is your take on you know what's next for Rafa and do you wish as someone who follows Rafa that he should maybe start scheduling uh, somewhere along the lines of Federer maybe you know start taking extended breaks do you think uh, that could be the norm for Nadal going forward <laughs> 
You know, well, when I saw that uh, he's out three weeks and he plans to be back uh, for the U.S. Hardcourt Series, I just kind of it, it raised my eyebrows because he he plays so so hard throughout the season and he always gets burnt out by the end of it. Like, why wouldn't he just wait a few more weeks until the clay court season and then go hard there, pile up the points, and then you know have a good ending to the season for once, right? Um, and obviously the French Open is is the center of his season and the one he, he absolutely has to get to. And and just, like, as long as he's there and healthy, he'll win it. But he might jeopardize that by coming back too early here. So I don't understand that. Um, and I wanted to add some, just on the other guys as well, um, the, the, the one that really does worry me most is Djokovic because he's trying to play with an injury and it didn't look, it looked like he was making it worse by by trying to go that hard through through the heat and through hard sets against Chung and I mean that that's worrying while some others like Stan has already had his surgery Murray's having his surgery you know these guys are on the up and up you have to think but but I'm I'm really worried about the future of Novak Djokovic he just took time off and now he's and it didn't get any better, and now he could be making it worse. Like he needs to get this treated and and figure his his injury out quickly. Otherwise, we may not have him again, at least this year. Uh, Omar is making some interesting points there, and uh, Mert, you've been on the tour, and you're the closest out of all of us, you know, who's lived that life. So. What is the mindset of a player like Djokovic uh, when he waited six months? Why couldn't he wait? Or what is the dilemma there? How does a player think? Uh, why rush back if you were not there 100%? Well, you know, sometimes when you come back from injury, there's also um, the possibility that you that that you have uh, rehabilitated and you've rested and now you got to try your body out in competition. And he might have gotten to the point where he felt like he could he could go ahead and play the matches and play in competition. And sometimes even if it hurts a little bit during competition, your first time back, you still play through it because you're on your way back and you and you hope that the competition itself strengthens it to the point where your next competition, it stops hurting. You know, in, in, in because as long as um, there's a little bit of hurt, you feel like you can still play the competition and strengthen it and be okay for the next one. I don't know if this is what he had in mind, but there is, but but that does exist. That type of uh, healing does exist, and not not every player necessarily waits until the pain is completely gone before they actually start practicing and playing competition. Some of them feel like they're on the right track and and it's almost gone, and now you need to get back to competition to test it or at least to to strengthen it. Uh, so that might have been what uh, what he has done, but uh, from from us looking outside, uh, I agree with um, I agree with Omar. He, he was um, he he looked like he was in pain, and the amount of pain might be a little bit more than than he expected. So we will uh, we will have to wait and see. It's it's really hard to make a call on uh, on Djokovic right now. But uh, but if you're a Djokovic fan, you would be worried for sure. Let's, uh, like I said, let's wish uh, the best of recoveries for all these guys, you know, who are trying to, you know, find best health. Uh, so, yeah, we are 25 minutes into it. And let's, you know, talk about, you know, the people who ended up winning this. Uh, so uh, I know we discussed the draw in detail, Mert. Uh, uh, does this win open the floodgates for Wozniacki or uh, what's your take? And, you know, how does she go from here? Now she's actually won a major and is world number one. 
Well, you know, now does the, do the floodgates open for Wozniak? It's a, it's a very uh, good question, and it's, uh, it's kind of ironic because if you think back at her, at her second round match against Fett when she faced two match points and she could have been out 5-1, uh, 40-15, Fett served um, a serve that was out by maybe an inch to the T. And uh, it's funny how lives, careers, matches, tournaments – turn around with uh, with by one second or one inch or or uh, or inches and uh, that serve was called out and then Wozniacki wins that point the next point and comes back and wins the match and eventually wins the tournament so yes little uh, little moments like that count a lot um, I would um, I would definitely consider this a huge monkey off uh, is back and yes I do think it will affect her the rest of her career I, th- I believe she will she will march on to the next big tournament or next major with a lot more confidence. And yes, it will make a difference. I, if if we were to create two timelines, parallel universes, from the moment uh, she she if she lost to Fett, and then another parallel universe, which is the one we're living in right now, where she wins the Australian Open, I think the two Wozniakis would have different destinies throughout 2018. So that that was a that was a monumental. Uh, tournament for yeah, it's going to be interesting to see her progress and you know when Serena comes back because tour is very evenly matched because there were a handful of you know uh, ladies who could have won this and you know this tournament really played out you know uh, a real grind till the very end uh, so Andrew uh, I know uh, we've talked a lot about Federer and you know no matter you know what the injured state is it's remarkable what he's done at 36 that he's won three of the last five majors and you followed him like anyone else for the longest time. Uh, I know it's a broad question. I asked this to Matt Zemek as well today. Uh, you think he is a better player today than he was when he was racking up slams back from uh, 2004 to 2007? And if yes, what has changed? And if not, why you think the older version is superior? Well, I think he's a different player, which um, we all are when we are 10 years or, in, you know, if you go from 2006 to 2017, 18, you know, maybe 11 to 12 years older. Um, the, you know, the older version of Roger Federer has 12 years more experience, plays with a bigger racket and, generates more easy power from that racket. And what that's allowed him to do, I think, is not have to put quite as much effort into hitting a serve. And also, as nearly every observer has said, it, it, it's really transformed the way he hits the backhand. It was striking in throughout the whole Australian Open tournament that Federer wasn't smoking backhand winners um, the way he had done in parts of the 2017 tournament, but the backhand was a very, very stable shot. Now, on the other hand, even though this version of Federer moves pretty well, I, you know, I would back the 2006 version of, of Federer in terms of, of movement all the time. And this version of Federer obviously is older and a bit more fragile. So, Every time he goes into a tennis tournament, you're never quite sure if he's going to he's going to pick up a nick along the way, and that's going to to, to make it 
harder for him to to be able to be as effective in the later rounds as he was able to be in the early part of his career. Um, you also just can't uh, avoid the question of the people that 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 he he was matched up with this year, um, and to a certain extent in the the 2017 Wimbledon, which he won. Um, you know, I think we could have a very likely and a long conversation about what the the 2006 opposition looked like, but I mean, he played um, he played in the Australian Open. You know, not exactly a murderer's row, but then in uh, Roland Garros and at Wimbledon, he he had to take on the Dal both times. Uh, we've already talked about Djokovic and Murray being absent. So if you look at the, the, the opposition that Federer faced in Wimbledon 2017 and Australian Open 2018, you know, both times not much of a murderer's row, uh, both times uh, taking on Thomas Berdyk and handling him reasonably comfortably, both times taking on Marin Cilic in the final. The first one, Wimbledon 2017, Cilic obviously affected by injury. In 2018 Australian Open, a little bit of controversy about uh, the application of the heat rule. Cilic seeming a little bit flustered in the early set, uh, in, in the first set rather, then you know, finding his feet, uh, making a real solid match of it having all the momentum going into the fifth set, having a couple of break points, Federer managing to hold in the first game and then take advantage of that and, and run away with the fifth set. So, you know, Federer overall, uh, as a fan, delighted that he, he won the tournament, delighted that he's, he's so competitive. But if you, if you want to look at it in terms of the overall cast of his career, um, it, it, it's actually pretty hard to say that, that winning this tournament, you know, it's great for players to win any tournaments, but that they're at the same level as his glory is. Hmm. Uh, fair enough and interesting points. So, Omar, let's stick uh, with uh, more Federer because, of course, he won uh, staggering number 20. Uh, I know you said, you know, before the tournament, we all pretty much had him locked in as a favorite. But given that and given how injured, you know, some of the top players are and, some of the young guys are not breaking through. Uh, but is it still impressive that a 36-year-old has won three of the last five? And, you know, uh, how do you see his uh, rest of the year uh, coming up if you were to make projections on just, you know, on the eve of him winning this tournament? Well, I guess the, the first question is an easy answer. I mean, is it still impressive that at 36 he's doing this? Um, yes, obviously. You look at the other the other three of the big four that are injured at just, you know, 30 and 31 years old. It shows that, you know, playing this, this sport that pounds your knees and, and all your joints and he's able to still move around like that at the age of 36 is pretty amazing, actually. And he's, he's had relatively few injuries if you compare to the other guys. I know he's had issues over the last few years, but it is, it's, it's pretty astounding. He's still at the top of his game. Um, I, when I watch him, I do think he's better than ever because there was one thing that Rafa used to do to him all the time. And that was just, he would pepper his backhand and eventually that backhand always broke down. 
until until uh, he started focusing on it. I think in the 2016-2017 years uh, year with Lubicic and and Luthi, his coaches. And they rebuilt that back end in a huge way so that he's able to turn it into a weapon instead of a liability. Um, so that that alone makes me think he's a better player now than he was in those younger years when he had a weakness, uh, an obviously glaring weakness in that game that was so full of weapons. Um, and uh, you asked me the rest of the year, obviously he's a favorite for Wimbledon. The rest of it, I'm not sure. And... Uh, I am wondering if he'll play on the clay court this year. It'll be really interesting to see. Yeah, I think he's already said that's going to be the toughest decision. So let's uh, let's see what him and his team decide. Uh, so, Mert, uh, both Andrew and uh, Omar really made some insightful points. And I want to come back to you on Federer. And uh, this is a conversation we've all had, you know, in different forms. Uh, and I believe... The moment a champion like Federer or even Nadal or Djokovic, these guys are so mentally strong. The moment they start reinventing, that itself is an admission that they are not good enough. So I know he got this racket and he's really made an impact on return of serve because he himself said he used to chip that serve uh, on the backhand side before and backhand somewhat in top competition was some sort of a liability. Uh, What's your take? Uh, You know, like if you were to balance out the two versions, I know it's a repeat question, but uh, does a champion, when he decides to reinvent, is that admission, okay, I have to do something else because I'm not as good as I used to be? Uh, as to the first part of the question that uh, Andrew touched on in depth already and, and Omar has talked about some, his, um, his the, the 2006 versus today, I, I, ju- I just watched, um, when I say I just watched just in the last few days, I watched one of my, actually my favorite uh uh, match between those these between Federer and Nadal the 2006 uh, Rome finals in, on clay and I also watched uh, Roger Federer's 2005 um, Indian Wells uh, win against Leighton Hewitt in 2005 and I can tell you that he's he, that uh, he's hitting the ball harder today than he was back then it's a uh, it's 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 a slower tennis back then so so he has definitely improved his tennis in that sense and uh, other than the footwork, I would call most of his shots improved. But but one thing that I would like to underline is that um, it, this is not any player improving their tennis or changing their tennis over a 12-year uh, period. Remember that Federer had a complete game already. I mean, he used to serve in Bali in the early days of Wimbledon. So for him, it was just switching from uh, from one thing that he knows – to another thing, to another thing that he already knows, or emphasizing one thing that he knows over the other that he has emphasized before, so it was an easier um, process for him. As to as to him reinventing his game, he did this. He, uh, Omar actually mentioned 2016-17, but I'd go back further. He did it in uh, in 2014 December. The off-season preparation for 2015 is when he started switching to to over, over coming over the top of his backhand and uh, in the Istanbul Open in 2015 on clay I uh, I saw him practice that and and I asked him after his match his semifinal win there and uh, and he said and I asked him if he's been particularly working on that because because in the first half of 2015 that's what he was doing he was coming over the top on his backhand return and he said yes actually we did and then then he went on to answer the question so he confirmed it himself and then in the, in Basel that year he won over 
you know, he that was the first of his wins over Rafael Nadal, over a string of five wins that he has now. And in that match, he came over the top on backhand returns 59 times versus slicing it back only twice. And if and that that was a complete change from the previous patterns because yes, Nadal used to just serve to his backhand. Federer most of the time would chip and charge it back or just simply put it back in the court and Nadal would run him to the ground, back and forth, left and right. And that started changing in 2015. So yes, he he reinvented himself. Sakiba could turn the question around and say, what has taken him so long? His, uh, his, uh, I mean, this this no, is an adjustment he could have made even earlier in his career because uh, because he because of the lopsided head to head that he had with Nadal. No, no, I was just uh, making a point, you know, saying that uh, you know we, we could look at it two ways. He reinvented himself, you uh, know, in, in the mid thirties, which is or or early thirties, which is admirable. But in that specific, for example, that specific adjustment there, I think he could have done he could have done it before even it, just just to come up with an answer to beat Rafael Nadal. I would like to share something that I listened a long time ago. I think on Australian Open Radio, I think it was Nick Lester, and he shared this, and I've already mentioned this uh, in in the podcast last year that he was in the uh, players' lounge and it was uh, Paul Anacon who was Federer's coach then sitting with Roger and that was the Cincinnati quarterfinals with Nadal coming up and th- there was no one else. And he said he couldn't you know, help just because there was no one else in the room and he heard the conversation. So even before the match, Anacon was just trying to say certain things and Federer, you know, they said the champion's mind is so tough. He kept saying, no, but Nadal would do this. No, this hasn't worked. So even then, I think uh, what the moral of the story is as mentally, uh, you know, tough these guys are, they're champions for a reason. So, like you said, I think just to re-emphasize that point that he might have entertained this thought, but it just he wasn't fully convinced that this is the way to go. And when he fully made the commitment, and now we can see, uh, he had, in a lot of ways, he had no choice because he felt, you know, the, the game he had is not going to get him or fetch him the titles. And the rest is history. Like, you know, he's very competitive with Djokovic when he was playing, uh, you know, some of his best tennis. And now he's turned, you know, some of that losing record against Nadal in, in his favor. You know, the scoreline looks quite respectable. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's Federer. I mean, you know, I don't think anything we can add more to the legend is enough because everything has been said. So let's focus on some of the other narrative that surrounds Federer and media and fans. Uh, and uh, I can start with Omar. And uh, there were always, you know, some speculations going in this tournament that it's uh, Roddick chipped in, that it's always business, and that's why he gets the night matches. And then uh, the final nail in the coffin, I guess, for many people was the tournament was played uh, indoors. It's an outdoor tournament, and the heat rule was in play when inconsistently it wasn't in play. So, Omar, why don't you go first, and then, you know, we can all uh, take a shot at this question. (laughs) I'm sure we all want to. And I think... uh... You know, from the coverage I'm seeing out there, it just it just seems like it hasn't been spoken about enough. What a huge impact uh, the decision to make it an indoor final played into the match. And, um, you know, Federer has the most indoor titles of any current player at 23. And that's almost double what uh, Djokovic or Murray or Cilic has eight. Nadal has two in his life. Uh, it's just he's a dominant player indoors. And... I'm sure the Australian Open organizers knew that. Um, 
And if you look at the outcome of the tournament, they get they get to use Federer on their marketing for the whole uh, rest of the year. They get to say he won his 20th uh, slam there. I mean, the incentives are there is the point I'm making there. Um, now, now there's the, it wasn't just that they closed the roof, but just hours before the match, Chilich is given an outdoor court to warm up on while Federer is warming up on an indoor court. And... And you could see uh, Chilich did not have a feel for the ball in the first set. He couldn't he couldn't hit a backhand worth anything. Uh, he wa- he sent his rackets to be restrung because they were done for outdoor conditions, and that first set was a complete write off for him. But I think what I read, Omar Chilich was given the choice to practice, and he said he'll practice outdoor because all tournament long he's only practiced outdoor. So I don't know if. Uh, if that was the case that he was he was not aware, I think he, they, they both were told. That's what I, I've read. Uh, nobody had a choice and the tournament decided. So, but yeah, good point about the rackets. The rackets bringing tension, you know, you could see. Chilich pointing to his group. So, not sure what that. You know, the indoor final. Yeah, I, I think they... Sorry, they both said that they were surprised by the fact that it was played indoors and... Chilich said after the match that he was very, it, it took a very, well, I'm trying to get the paraphrase right, but he said it was very, very hard for him to adjust to the indoor conditions, is what he said. Well, it, it wasn't just an in, that, that it was played as an indoor final. I think that throughout the, the tournament, there was a degree of muttering about whether the tournament was showing favoritism for a particular player. You had Federer playing all of his matches on Rod Laver Arena. You had him playing three evening matches to start off with and then uh, a, a single-day match against a player, uh, Fuksovic, who was not expected to be a, a, a strong threat. And so... You could construct a storyline if you wanted to. Uh, you could make reference to the fact that Team 8, which is the, the management group that uh, Federer helped to set up, which is run by Tony Godsick, uh, runs the Labour Cup or is a big part of the Labour Cup, and uh, Tennis Australia is a partner there. So you can construct a storyline, and Omar's already mentioned other aspects of it, where a big kangaroo paw comes down on the scales, you know, to usher a favoured son to, to the title. The trouble with that narrative for me is that there was a really good article in the New York Times on Sunday about how Tennis Australia has developed the tournament from the late 1980s when it was really an also-ran among the Grand Slams to to genuinely um, absolutely the equal of the other Grand Slams, but also a real magnet for Australia's sporting role in Asia. They really reinvented it as the Grand Slam of Asia-Pacific and there was a lot about Nishikori's success for Japan, about Chung's success now for South Korea, about Li Na for China. And so I think that, that everyone who is taking part in, in running an event like that has the long term in mind, not just 
this year and next year, but the next 10 to 15 years. And, you know, were it to be true and were the the were some intrepid reporter and, I, and I'm sure investigative reporters are looking high and low for evidence on this. But were it to be true that, that a tournament had for short term reasons shown favoritism to a particular player, it would be one of the biggest scandals in sport, certainly in Australia, but possibly world sport. So so my sense is I can construct the story. But my instincts, and they're not just because of fandom, my instincts are it, it, it just doesn't add up. Uh, let me also throw, Andrew, what Andy Roddick said, because, you know, he pretty much held court on Twitter and uh, a lot of fans, and he went toe-to-toe giving, you know, insights that, you know, some of us don't, at least I don't have, because uh, we don't know how this works. And he clearly said, let's not pretend it's not a business and uh, TV networks and all the people who have paid call the shots. And a lot of time the demand is for Federer. And, uh, and he also said, which, uh, you know, that Djokovic did decline the Momfis match and players don't sometimes make requests uh, themselves. He wanted Momfis in the heat. And that's something even uh, Chris Fowler said that, you know, he would never throw Agassi under the bus. So there were a lot of other narratives that were surrounding this. Uh, but yeah, I think, but I do get a feeling that TV and these tournaments are getting greedy because they don't know if this is Federer's last time around. And even in Wimbledon, he used to play court one, you know, at least once a fortnight. Or, uh, but now they are just keeping him in center because they don't know if he's coming back. Uh, I don't know. So this is uh, something, uh, you know, it, it can be argued back and forth. Uh, Mert, do you want to add your two cents on uh, the the scheduling and uh, the supposed uh, pro federer? Uh, yes, I, I would like to just, uh, just take a route where I that where we separate three issues that I believe get com- conflated in this uh, in this discussion. There are three separate issues, and I'd like to comp- compartmentalize them just very quickly. Um, the one one issue is is the is the five. What happened on Sunday when uh, Federer and Chilich were playing? The second issue is what once that's uh, once that's been discussed thoroughly. How do we compare that to the to the earlier two weeks, especially that Thursday back when it was when the heat was uh, was high? And then there's also the issue of the women's final being played outdoors, and and which uh, which is. Uh, which is perhaps unfair to them because they've had the, they've had the long matches and, and plus women get less of a break in the second in the second half of the uh, in the second half of the tournament than the men do. But uh, let me get back to just the Sunday. What happened on Sunday? Federer and Chilich both said that they were informed by the tournament that they would find out half an hour before, approximately. Chilich, I believe, used the term uh, around seven o'clock, and Federer used the term thirty minutes before. So that so they're so what the two of them said are consistent. In other words, they were both informed that they would find out about around half an hour before whether the match would be indoors or outdoors. So what, their decision to practice indoors or outdoors is on them, and and not the tournament. Now Chilich apparently chose to practice outdoors, and Federer apparently chose to practice indoors. There were there was the mixed doubles match going going on I believe that were that was being played indoors so uh, you know it, it's it to to think that somehow um, there's some conspiracy going on here I, I believe is is just incorrect uh, the, the tournament the index showed a, a number that was above the rules the tournament applied the rules there was really no other way to handle the situation as a separate issue if we're going to talk about whether the rule is good or, 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 or bad, I think the rule is terrible. 
you know, I, the, the, I, I don't understand how um, how the, the Thursday before they they had the players playing out, outdoors or uh, or Halep and Wozniacki play outdoors the day before, and then Federer and Chilich get moved indoors. But I don't think it was the result of a conspiracy. It, it was it, the, just on that uh, particular Sunday. I believe the process was followed correctly under the existing rules for Sunday. So let me, let, can, I, Akib, can I just come in and say that it, the rule was applied in terms of discretion, that there are two components to it, which is the, the actual temperature and something called a wet bulb index, which I think takes humidity into account. And, and one element of the rule was above the threshold, one was not above the threshold, and the, the tournament director, having taken advice from the uh, from medical staff and from meteorologists, applied discretion and said, we'll, we'll have the match indoors. Hmm. So let me throw this to Omar, and maybe you all can take a stab at this, because Pat Cash also and Greg Rosetsky, they were live tweeting, and that's where this starts. And Pat Cash said, uh, uh, Chilich probably, Federer had, a, had an advantage because in indoors, he would, you know, doesn't have to deal with the, the heat and uh, wind. Uh, but as someone who's followed Federer, I'm sure you all have, uh, Federer trains in Dubai, and throughout his career, I never remember uh, him, you know, struggling in heat. And he, in fact, in, in, in harder conditions, I think it's served, it's aids his game too because and exa- because the conditions are quicker and uh, and he's also a great wind player. So uh, I know the narrative sometimes can be, you know, because Federer is the chosen one, it seems like, but he really has beaten Omar Cilic uh, outdoors as well. So uh, I know you said he has a better serving rhythm. So how would you factor in, uh, you know, Federer's outdoor record and his training camp in Dubai and his, uh, you know, great record under the sun as well? Yeah. um, Now, maybe Mert will be able to better speak to this than I can. But what I've what I've learned about uh, indoor conditions is that the ball bounces lower and it skids off the court more, which to me sounds very, very similar to uh, the grass court conditions, which we all know favor Federer in a big way. Um, I think the indoor uh, conditions also uh, favor a very accurate serve and, and Federer definitely has, you know, pinpoint serve positions. Um, And I think, you know, from this is anecdotal, but from, from what I've observed when Federer is under the roof, his serve is, is just like this unbreakable weapon and the only person who, who does break it is himself, because I know Mark, he, you want to say he did dump a couple of service games uh, on Sunday in the final, but it was it was more because he wasn't getting his first serves in, and he had a bit of a mental lapse than than his opponent on the other side, uh, from what I saw. So um, that's yeah, that's my take on on his indoor game. It is it's a dominant force. Yes, there, there is one thing I want to add. I, unfortunately, in this all this talk, in, the, in all this talk, and I'm not talking about the the, the, the four of us talking, but in general, uh, over the last few days, in all this talk about the match moving indoors and favoring Federer, uh, it's been forgotten. But a great indoor player, Marin Cilic, is. he's he's got 17 ATP titles. Eight of them are indoors. That's uh, that's almost 50 percent of his titles are indoors. The guy can play indoors. 
So he's, you know, as much as it might take into account the fact that uh, that that uh, indoor play also makes Chilich a better player. He's got his biggest titles indoors, in fact, and he plays the sure, farthest more, tournaments uh, indoors over the course of the year Andrew, than he plays outdoors. And still eight of his 17 uh, titles have come indoors. So I think that that needs to be taken into account also. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's not just about Federer. There are other uh, players. Uh, the, the other player also has a good indoor record. Yes. Uh, one other thing is that I read the press conferences afterwards and Federer said, look, if we'd been playing outdoors, if they'd chosen to play it outdoors and it's hot, you know, I think Chilich is a bigger guy. You know, maybe um, if it's a long match, that counts in my favor. When Chilich was talking about it, he was saying, hey, when I was playing outdoors in hotter conditions against Rafa, I felt the ball was coming off my racket quicker and that might have favored me. So I don't think you make it to a Grand Slam final without being really positive that you can handle what's, what's thrown in your direction. So I think that there's this is one of those things that the people love to uh, you know love to second guess the tournament. I think you can do that. I think you can do that in a number of occasions throughout uh, this Australian Open and some other tournaments as well. But I, I, I really don't think that the the tournament was was basically totting up the um, the pros and cons with a particular outcome in mind, which would be a Federer win. And I think both both players thought that they could handle whatever was thrown at them. Okay, fair enough. I think we've covered quite a few on this court. Uh, uh you know, final, uh, final, indoor final topic. Let's uh, try to wrap this up with a couple of other questions. So, Omar, we were in Montreal and uh, we saw the rise of uh, Dennis Shapovalov. Uh, so, you are from Canada. How is the hype there? And, you know, the guy is legit. Uh, how is Canadian tennis standing right now in terms of popularity and uh, with another youngster coming up as well? <laughs> yeah, it's oh, it's exciting. Um, I think you know, there hasn't been a lot of hype um, over over the years in Canadian tennis. You know, there was Milos Raonic has definitely got some fans into it, but he's also a tough guy in terms of, of being able to bring fans in because it, uh, you, uh, maybe you guys have different thoughts, but I, I think when I watch him, it's not compelling. Like, you're just seeing a big booming serve, a quick, a quick rally, either someone hits it out or or chips it back and then there's there's a volley you know it, it's just not it's not fun to watch uh whereas Shapovalov is exactly the opposite he's going to draw people into the sport he's fun to watch he's got swagger he's got flash um he kind of plays a lot like Nadal kind of he reminds me of him I don't know if that's just because he's a lefty or because he's got great shots off both sides um and and he's not all, right? We have Felix also, who's sadly been injured for a lot of the past few months, maybe eight months or so. Yeah, so I was saying, um, I think the, the excitement is going to improve even more when Felix uh, recovers from his injuries. That's Felix Ojeh-Aliassime, who, who's actually tracking, you know, in terms of accomplishments at a young age, he's had more. Uh, he's 17 and he's already started playing the challengers. 
Shapovalov was 18 when he started playing in Challengers. Um, and I think Felix is, is tracking to maybe be a better player, which, which would be amazing. You could have two Canadians making deep runs um, at many tournaments in just a couple of years from now, if not sooner. So mm. it really is, uh, you notice the networks here are taking much more interest in tennis. You notice people on Twitter, like I used to tweet about tennis and hear nothing back when I would, when I would be talking about tennis. And now there's definitely a following that's, that's coming and, and starting to pay attention to the sport, which, you know, Canadians used to just pay attention to hockey most of the time. So it is, it's a fun thing to be watching and to kind of be writing about as well. Yeah, definitely. I think we all agree. Dennis and Felix are, uh, you know, very exciting talents. And uh, I think the stock's only going to go up. So, guys, thanks for joining. Let's wrap, wrap this up. And I'll just throw in a, a, a quick rapid-fire question. So, you just have to answer the question uh, uh, one each. So, let me ask uh, the same question to everyone. Uh, so, at the end of the year, who's going to be ranked higher? Uh, Mert, you can go first. Uh, Djokovic or Nadal? Nadal. Uh, Andrew? Nadal. All right, that was easy. So, Omar, you want to say different or you agree? No, no, definitely agree. Now, sorry, can I, can, I, can I ask a different question, which is who's going to be ranked higher out of those two in 2019, at the end of 2019? I'll say Djokovic. I'll say Djokovic too, but there are a lot of variables there. Yeah, and the final question again, starting with Mert. Out of those uh, two, who reaches a major final Nick. this year? Sasha, Nick, or neither? Oh, that's right. I forgot about neither. Yeah. <laughs> Omar. Yep, I'm going with Kyrgios as well for sure. Andrew. Neither. neither. Okay. All right. So yeah, let's take stock of these answers at the end of the year. It was a great chat, guys. Thanks for joining and. Uh, yeah, well done, Federer and Wozniacki. It was fun. Cheers. Cheers, guys. Thank you. Omar, nice to meet you.